One of our most basic assumptions around here is that your theology affects how you live. And we mean this for all people. What you believe about God, what you think is true about him, is going to show up in the way that you spend your time, in the words that you say, the way that you treat others. What we believe about God affects the way we live. True generally, but we confess this is especially true for God's people. We confess to know God by by his grace, that he's revealed himself to us uh, in a saving way. And yet, if we also know that if our, if our thoughts about God are disordered, if they're out of whack, if we're wrong about something, that often shows up in the, the way we respond to our sin or trials or other things going on in our life. What we believe about God shows up in our lives. We started thinking about this a few weeks ago when we looked at Luke chapter 15. And I began the sermon by saying, you know, the, the key questions of religion are kind of laid bare for us there in that passage. What is God like? What pleases him? Uh, what does it take for a sinner to be accepted by him? And through the parables there, Jesus taught some of the answers to those questions. He, he kind of gives us a sketch of what God is like. We saw that God is a compassionate father. He's eager to show grace to those who repent of their sin. We saw that he's so gracious and willing to forgive that he forgives both the prodigals who who recklessly spend all that he has on wild living and he's willing to confess the self uh, uh, forgive the self-righteous older brother. He invites him in to the feast as well. So great is God's compassion. But perhaps the most controversial thing that Jesus does in all of what he says is he says that he himself is the revelation of God's great compassion. He's saying saying to these religious leaders of his day that if they want to know God's compassion, they have to know him. They have to believe in him and him alone. In Luke, Jesus also shows us that that God is the righteous judge. So in Luke chapter 12, Jesus told us not to fear human rulers who have the authority to throw you in jail or even to to kill you, to kill your body. But instead of fearing them, we should fear God as the one who has the authority to cast body and soul into hell. And in that same chapter, we heard about the the rich fool, this parable about a man who collects all this wealth for himself and then his soul is required of him and his wealth does him no good, right? We're told that that those who die in unrepentance go to hell, a place of unending torment. We saw this again last week where there was a rich man who seemed to enjoy every blessing yet neglected the beggar at his gate and he is cast into hell. We've met along the way people who resist God, who resist Christ and are proud, who try to use God's law to abuse people. And Jesus has many warnings for them about judgment to come. Again, this revelation of God's righteousness and judgment can be seen in what Jesus says and what he teaches. But it's not merely a matter of his words. Just as we said that Jesus is himself God's love, we could also say Jesus is the righteousness and judgment of God. So Jesus Again, very controversially says that if you want to know the righteous rule of God, you must know him. 
You must submit to him. And if you don't, you will be cast into hell for all eternity. Jesus is God's love. Jesus is God's righteousness. And without knowing Jesus, we can't know those things. When Jesus arrives on the scene and begins healing and preaching, he finds that the religious leaders of his day have bad theology and it's showing up in how they live. They are rejecting both God's grace and God's righteousness. And they especially hated Jesus' announcement that he's God in the flesh. And this shows up in their lives. So they grumble that Jesus extends God's grace to sinners. And they see themselves like that older brother in the prodigal parable. They see themselves as almost like mistreated, slavishly obedient sons of God or servants of God. They also, these Pharisees and religious leaders, they repeatedly tried to prevent people from being healed by Jesus, and they justify this with God's law. We see these ways they failed to know God as their compassionate Father. And they despise the truth that they needed to trust in Jesus to receive God's grace for themselves. Their theology shows up in the way they live. At the same time, for all of their self-righteousness, these people had not truly confronted the righteousness of God. It's a tragic irony about the self-righteous, both in Jesus' day, I think in our own day, that for all of their religious rules and traditions and their carefulness, they inevitably lower the standard of God's righteousness. When we are our most self-righteous and pumped up with our own righteousness, we are lowering the standard of God's righteousness. And that's because in order to, to kind of feel self-righteous, and when you're, when you're not, you have, to, you have to lower the standard. You have, to, you have to come up with something that you can achieve, some version of God's righteousness that you can do. And so the, the self-righteous come up with these, these new standards, these lower standards of righteousness, and they find religiously plausible ways to justify their sin. My sin is okay because of X, Y, and Z loophole. Because God doesn't really care about that. He really cares about this. They justify themselves. And that's exactly what Jesus said the Pharisees were doing last week in chapter 16. You are those who justify yourselves before men. The self-righteous are good at fooling men. But God knows your heart. See, these self-righteous leaders were not really that concerned with God's true righteousness with God the righteous judge. They presumed upon their traditions and their status within Israel, but really at heart they despised God's law. And they despised Jesus for being the interpretative, or the authoritative interpreter and agent of God's righteous rule on earth. They despised Jesus as the revelation of God's compassion and God's righteousness. And Luke shows us this by showing the Pharisees in their arguments and their actions. They, they, are, they show us what it looks like when we get our theology wrong, when we get God wrong. We, we see them in their despising of the weak, and their despising of God's rule, and their despising of Christ. So with that background in mind of Jesus showing us and Luke showing us what it looks like when we get God wrong, 
Here in chapter 17 of Luke, and we're going to look at the first 10 verses, Jesus shows us what it looks like for disciples to live when we get God right. He's kind of got the Pharisees in the background as a point of comparison, and he's instructing his disciples now, and in a very kind of basic sense, he's saying, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't get God wrong the way the Pharisees have gotten God wrong. But what he says here is deeper than that, I think, because he's playing on these two big theological ideas that are at the root, that God is a compassionate father and a righteous judge. I think it helps us if actually we mix up the modifiers and the nouns and say that God is a righteous father. He's perfectly righteous, and yet he has all the compassion of a father. Or we could say he's a merciful judge. He's a righteous judge who will not leave the guilty unpunished, but he's also merciful to those who repent. We have to hold both of those things together. And when we do, when we believe and obey the one true God in all of his righteousness and abundant grace, we're going to live Jesus the way Jesus describes here in these first 10 verses of Luke 17. When disciples know God in this way, in his perfect righteousness and abundant grace, we will live as faithful servants under his righteous rule. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read these verses, Luke 17, 1 through 10. You can find this on page 876 of the Bibles provided. And then I'll give you a roadmap for our time today. Luke 17, 1 through 10. Listen to God's word. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he, was cast, he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants and have only done what was our duty. Today we're going to look at this passage and see four kind of proverbial lessons for disciples. These lessons begin at the level of relationships with others, and then they work down to the depths of the disciples' basic orientation to God. So here are the four lessons, four duties of a disciple, we might say. Don't lead God's children to sin. That's number one. Don't lead God's children to sin. Number two, love God's children when they sin. Love God's children when they sin. Number three, Believe in Christ. Believe in Christ. And finally, serve the Lord. So don't lead God's children to sin. Love God's children when they sin. Believe in Christ and serve the Lord.
Let's look at this first lesson. Don't lead God's children to sin. And this is in verses 1 and 2 of the, of the chapter. And he said to his disciples, Temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Jesus is very realistic, isn't he, about what sin is like and what it's like for sinners to live in a fallen world. They're sure to come, these temptations to sin. The word translated sin here is is not one of the usual words we see for sin in the New Testament. It's a, a Greek word that literally means stumbling block. And it usually has a special meaning of something like apostasy, abandoning faith in Christ. So that's the temptations Jesus is talking about, these temptations that come to us to abandon our faith. And these temptations exist in every age. So they were real in the first century when Jesus was preaching and preaching and his followers were first coming to know him. They were threatened with persecution, right? A huge temptation to apostatize was turn away from your faith in Christ so that you can save your skin, right? Renounce Jesus and you won't die and be thrown to the lions. We see this temptation to apostatize throughout the New Testament letters where Paul and the other New Testament writers are often identifying ways that Judaizing teachers were saying, come back to Judaism. You don't need to be so radical in your devotion to Christ. You can add back in the old ways and, and turn away from faith in Christ alone. So there were many who were, who were tempting others to turn away from Christ. Of course, there's also just the temptations of Living life your own way, right? Don't be bound by what Jesus has to say, what God would put on your life, and just, just do what you want. And join, join us in our, our, our reckless living, kind of like the prodigal son. Those, those temptations are kind of perennial, right? There's always that temptation to live for yourself. But we recognize our modern world has its own temptations to abandon Christ. Right? We live in a skeptical age, an age where, where there's every reason it seems to doubt. The default mode even is kind of to doubt all things, And so there's lots of temptations to turn away from faith in Christ. Jesus says we're we're always going to have these temptations. As long as the church is on earth before Jesus returns, we're going to face these temptations to turn away from him. He's very realistic about that. He knows what we face. But what really concerns Jesus here is that his disciples should not be the cause of such a temptation for others. Right, he's talking to disciples in chapter 17, verse 1. He said to his disciples, and so he's saying, whatever you do, don't let the way you live or speak encourage one of Christ's little ones to stumble, to turn away from Jesus. And we see just how serious Jesus is about this warning with what he says about the millstone, right? this really large circular stone. If it's tied around your neck and you're thrown into the sea, you're going to sink and die. This is a death sentence, okay? This is a form of execution. Jesus says that this terrible fate will be better for you than if you're one of these who causes one of his little ones to sin. So on the last day, those who have enticed others to abandon Jesus will be thinking longingly of those executed by millstone. That would have been better for me than what I'm facing right now, is what you'll say at that day. 
If we want some specifics on what might cause someone to stumble, we have a lot of material to look at in Luke. So again, the Pharisees are guilty of having tried to prevent people from coming to be healed by Jesus on the Sabbath, citing God's law, Sabbath laws, for for preventing them. So using God's own law, God's own word, to prevent people from coming to God's Son. Uh, So essentially, it's kind of a spiritual abuse, manipulating and controlling people and hindering them from knowing the grace of God and using God's law to do so. That's one kind of causing people to stumble. They did this often through burdening people with man-made traditions that they couldn't even keep all of them themselves. So we might call this legalism. When we advocate or practice legalism or any, in any way re- use religion to hinder people from the grace of Christ, we might be causing others to stumble. You know, believing that they can reach God by their own works. Such legalism may cause others to stumble. You know, sometimes when we read of the Protestant reformers and we, we read about their rhetoric against the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope, you know, it can seem over the top sometimes. We think, man, they, they really needed to take it down a notch, perhaps. And maybe that's true in some ways. But in other ways, they're simply echoing Jesus. Because they recognize that the, the legalism and traditions of the Roman Catholic Church caused many to stumble. The Roman Catholic Church had erected barriers that kept people from knowing the grace of Christ. They, the Roman Catholic Church teaches and taught that, that somehow our good works can be the basis of our justification before God. And so by teaching that false gospel, they were hindering people from knowing the true gospel. So sometimes that extreme rhetoric is warranted, like Jesus' extreme rhetoric of saying, you know, it would be better for them if a millstone were hung around their neck. We should vigorously oppose false gospels. But of course, this warning is, is not a warning that's only for Roman Catholics. It's a warning for all of us. It's a warning for us, especially when we are tempted to live a hypocritical life of pretending that we're better than we are. When we do that, we minimize our need for grace. We present a false picture of ourselves to others that may cause them to think, well, if I'm not as cleaned up as they are, then I must not be worthy of Christ. I must not be a true Christian. We have to come to grips with the fact that our our lives and our words can preach a lie about the compassion and grace of Christ. The compassion and grace that he has for sinners who repent. Or if you go to the other end of the spectrum, we could also use our Christian freedom in such a way that encourages a brother or a sister to violate their conscience. We can cause them to stumble by encouraging them to treat sin lightly. Jesus wants every disciple to hear this warning. If we know God as the compassionate Father, we will want his little ones to know his compassion. And there's no reason to think that little ones here refers to children. It likely refers to people like the the woman of Luke 7, the sinful woman who Jesus forgives, or the woman who is disabled in the synagogue who he heals. But it includes any disciple of Christ. We should not want any of them to stumble. If we know God as a righteous judge, we will take care not to add anything to his gospel. 
not to in any way, so far as it's within our power, mislead a brother or sister. And Jesus ends this teaching with the exclamation, pay attention to yourselves. We, we hear that said to, from by Paul to, I think, the Ephesian elders, watch your life and doctrine. That, that's something that's specially for elders, but it's not only for elders. It's, it's for every Christian. A disciple must watch their life and doctrine. Each of us must take our own walk with God seriously. And this isn't, here at least, a project for self-improvement or self-care. Right? He doesn't tell us to watch out for ourselves for our own sake here. It's to watch out for ourselves as an act of love for our brothers and sisters in the church. We pay attention to ourselves, to our own life and doctrine, for the sake of those who are watching us. And someone is always watching. I mean, parents know this. Your children are always watching you. But it's true here, too. People are watching you. How are you responding to that trial? How do you come to church? What do you speak about? What's first and foremost when it comes to your life and your relationship with God? What are those who are watching you learn, learning about Christ from you? What functional theology are, the way, are they picking up from the way you live? In Luke, Jesus has already pronounced many woes upon the Pharisees for the ways that they were burdening and misleading people. But now he has a woe for anyone, any disciple of his, that might lead another to sin. If you have authority over anyone at all, this should especially hit home. How are you leading those under your care? Fathers, are you leading your families to Christ? Or are you leading them away from Jesus by the way you live and act? Mothers, where are you leading your families? Church member, where is your life leading Christ's little ones? Lesson number one for disciples is this. Don't lead God's children to sin. For the second lesson, Jesus keeps talking about sin, but now he moves from preventing sin to addressing sin when it happens. Again, Jesus is really realistic about sin. He knows it's going to happen. So let's read verses 3 through 5. I think this pay attention to yourselves can kind of go both ways. It might refer to what's going before and what's come after, so we'll read it again. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. In just a few short words, Jesus covers two huge and challenging topics for Christian relationships. Correcting people when they sin and forgiving people when they sin against us. But before we get to correction and forgiveness, we should note he talks here about brothers which can function in Greek as a gender-inclusive word, so I think it's right we could read this brother and sister, brother or sister. Jesus assumes here a family relationship. You know, Bible commentators aren't often known for their pastoral applications, but here, Daryl Bach, the, when he wrote one of the great commentaries on Luke, is very helpful. He says about these words that the community of believers is a family 
in the best sense, uh, in the sense that the best interest of each member is a concern of each other member. Thus, the call to rebuke is the exercise of a familial responsibility. The assumption in all of this is that disciples have a certain quality in their relationship that allows this type of positive, honest, loving, confronting behavior to occur without destroying their relationship. Jesus says here, we're like a family, right? And we, we know this in our own families, right? The parents exercise this res- responsibility, especially when, when their children sin. We, we know we have to correct them, right? No one else is going to do it. We have to step in, right? And Lord willing, you know, if you grow up and you're a sibling and your sibling's out of line, you, you, you step in, right? You hope you have a, a family relationship that can bear that weight. And often we don't, but that's the ideal, so perhaps we need to make sure we're saying this is like a healthy, loving, godly family, right? Because we, we know that our, often, our families are often dysfunctional when it comes to addressing sin. Things go undealt with. But this family relationship means, and this family relationship in the church, means that your righteousness and sin are my concern. And they're not my concern because I'm your pastor, they are that, but they're my concern because I'm a church member with you. We're members of the same body. And my righteousness and my sin, those things are your concern. And that's true for every relationship in the church. Now, this, this doesn't mean that Jesus is commanding us here to kind of to be always on the hunt and, and to catch each other in doing wrong. That, that's not what we're after. But when we see a brother or sister in clear sin... We are to offer a rebuke, to correct, to say, brother or sister, that that was wrong what you did. You shouldn't have spoken that way. Elsewhere in scripture, we know that this should be done lovingly, gently, assuming the best, right? Love believes all things. So we, we realize that most of the time, any kind of rebuke and correction we offer needs to be done with humility. I mean, all the time in humility, but most of the time with questions and making sure we understand. Did, did I really see or hear what I thought I saw? But with all those caveats in place, Jesus says that this is how a group of Christians deals with sin when it arises. We correct it, right? And the Proverbs say, better is an open correction than hidden love, Right? This is real love Jesus is describing here. We, we love sinners when they sin. Jesus' teaching has something to say both to the sinner and those who witness it, doesn't it? I mean, we, we have to be open to correction. If we sin, we, we, we should want others to tell us about it, to show it to us. Does that describe you? I mean, naturally, no, right? Naturally, none of us want that. But by God's grace, we can come to that point where we desire holiness more than we desire comfort and our good reputation. And when we witness sin, Jesus says, we must be willing and courageous enough to correct others because we love them. A willingness to correct recognizes that we're all children of a righteous father. We're all servants of a merciful judge. And what we should desire most for each other is that we live in faith and obedience. That we live in submitting to God's righteousness and trusting on his grace. That's what we should want for each other. And so, 
Jesus would ask you, are you bold enough and loving enough to rebuke and correct your brother and sister when they sin? Again, we can, we can say there's all kinds of relational foundations we want to be there, ideally, but Jesus is kind of bringing us to the crucial question. Are we willing to love in this way? Of course, correction isn't the only way to love people when they sin. And in terms of word count, Jesus puts a lot more emphasis on forgiving people than correcting people here, doesn't he? So, again, he's very realistic that we live in a fallen world. We live with indwelling sin in our hearts. And so if you get a bunch of people like that together, they're going to offend each other. We're going to sin against each other. We will think, or we'll speak before we think. We'll say hurtful things. We'll neglect to care for each other in ways we should have. What do we do when that happens? Well, Jesus tells us. And again, there's an implied uh, command to the sinner. The sinner should repent. But when the sinner repents, we should forgive. Now, I want to be clear. I don't want to see more sin in our church. But I do think it would be healthy to see more repentance and forgiveness. So in that sense, if, if a church is full of people and they never talk about ways they've offended each other and need to forgive each other, it's likely a sign of unhealth. It may mean that we're not very close to each other or it may mean that our understanding of the gospel doesn't go very deep. Now, if someone has offended you, you may, by God's grace, be able to cover that sin. You know, love covers a multitude of sin and, and it may, you know, forgive it in your heart and never, and never need to bring it up. That, that may be where you are and that's a wonderful grace when that happens. You know, you, you heard that offensive thing against you and you thought, that's just, that's just not worth talking about. But it may be that, that as try as you might, you can't let it go. That that offensive thing has really hurt you. And yet you've been too afraid to deal with it. Perhaps the Lord is telling you even now to, to confront that brother or sister who sinned against you. It may be uncomfortable. You're not promised how it's going to go. But can you trust that the gospel can bring reconciliation between two people? That you can confront them and they might hear that and repent and you can forgive them? Do you believe that the gospel can do that? The church that's not concerned with one another's sin is, is in error, right? And the church that is concerned with other's sin is not a legalistic church. So to be this kind of church doesn't mean, again, that we're always on the hunt for sin, that we're just kind of meddling around, lying in wait to catch one another. Rather, it's a church that's on the hunt for a glorious display of God's mercy and righteousness. We want to be a church where God's righteousness and mercy are displayed. We want to be a family of people who love each other so much that we are not content with open sin, where, where we address it. We want to be a church where we're, we love each other so much that we desire one another's joy in the gospel. A church where we are resolved not to let sin destroy or divide us. Instead, we work to apply the gospel through repentance and forgiveness. We forgive 
as those who have been forgiven much. We're able to repent and tell the ugly truth about our sin because we know how much we've been forgiven and our status with God is secure. My status with God is secure despite what so-and-so may think of me when I have to humble myself and confess how I've sinned yet again. So, we're left with this series of questions. Are you approaching relationships in the church with a commitment to God's righteousness and compassion? Is your knowledge of God's righteousness and compassion showing up in the way that you treat each other? When you sin, are you willing to repent? Do you desire correction? When, those, when people sin against you, are you forgiving and patient? Again, all of us have to admit that our default position is no to all these questions, right? When we sin, we're protective and self-justifying, and we don't want to be outed. We don't want to be confronted. We don't want to be called. But what is God's grace meant to do to us? But make us receptive to correction and humble and repentant and forgiving. We forgive as those who've been forgiven much. The gospel of Christ, crucified in our place, is powerful enough to enable this kind of community. And so by God's grace, let's lean in to what Christ has done. Let's lean in so that our relationships in the church reveal our faith in the gospel. Disciples love God's children when they sin. And this leads to the third lesson of Jesus for his disciples. Disciples believe in Christ. The apostles said to the Lord in verse 5, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. The apostles haven't been mentioned a lot in Luke, but they have been mentioned. So they appear in, when he first calls the twelve, and then they, they've last spoken in chapter 9. These would be the most innermost you know, twelve disciples of Jesus. And here they're asking the Lord to increase their faith. This is a good thing. They recognize the centrality of faith, and perhaps after hearing Christ's call to forgive, they have a sense of how far they have to go of how weak their faith is. They're, they're saying maybe what you and I are saying. I don't think I could ever do that. Lord, increase my faith. And so Jesus gives them this proverbial image of a grain of a mustard seed as an example of, of a tiny faith and this mulberry tree. Now, if you're like me, mulberry tree doesn't mean anything to you. Uh, apparently this was a, a kind of a sycamore tree, but a different kind. But both sycamores and mulberries were known for their gigantic root systems such that some of these trees were known to live for up to 600 years. So to, to have one uprooted and planted in the sea would truly be an amazing, miraculous thing. And we, we use the same kind of phrases sometimes. We say it, you know, a great oak grows from a tiny acorn. So Jesus is kind of playing on the city of something big and something little and their strange relationship. But what's interesting is that as the disciples ask this question, they want, they want to have increased faith Jesus offers them an illustration about tiny faith. It seems to be that the response is a subtle rebuke to the question. Right? They're right in wanting, more, or wanting faith, but they've misunderstood it. And Jesus wants them to understand that what matters is not the amount of faith you have, 
What matters is whether you have faith or not. Because even this, this tiny bit of faith in Jesus' parable does this amazing, unheard of thing. In other words, if you have any faith at all, amazing, miraculous, unexpected things can happen. Now, the point, though, is not that we would all become miracle workers, you know, that we're just like tossing things around like Jedi, right? That's not it. The point goes back to what Jesus is just talking about. Can you imagine a community where people receive correction when they sin? Can you imagine a community where someone is sinned against and, and they, they forgive? You might say, well, that, that kind of community is impossible. Without, without God, it is. But by faith in the Son of God, who took on flesh to die for sinners, who died in our place, who's forgiven us an infinite debt against God, by faith in Him, What's impossible with us becomes real. By faith, lovers of self can become lovers of God's righteousness. By faith, selfish people can love the way God loves. By faith, proud people can become humble and repentant. By faith, people who naturally hold a grudge like a dog on a bone can forgive. What's naturally impossible becomes real by the grace of God, which we receive by faith. I wonder if you have a sense of the impossibility of life without faith. You know, on the surface, it doesn't seem so hard. You just keep going, live a normal life, roll with the punches, do what you want. But do you have a true sense, if you live that kind of life, of, of what you could do with sin? I mean, in, before we even think about sin against God, just, just think about dealing with sin with other people. How do you respond well, the first time your girlfriend or wife really fails you? Or when you really fail them? What do you do with that? What mechanism, what resources do you have to deal with that? Or what do you do when everything in this life is taken away? You know, sometimes we see that that happens to somebody, you know. Everything they built their life on is just kind of erodes from underneath them. And some tragedy befalls them. Whether that happens kind of within the normal period of life or at the end, Jesus is clear it's all going to be taken away. What, what will you do then? All the things that you've been banking on to bring you joy, peace, strength, those things are gone. At the day of judgment, they don't provide any joy, peace, and strength anymore. What are you building your life on? You have a sense of the impossibility of life without faith. Without the work of Christ on the cross, it's impossible to deal with your sin. There's no solution for it. But by faith in Christ, the impossible becomes real. By faith in Christ... Your guilt against God is uprooted and removed, dumped into the sea, buried, as far as the east is from the west. By God's grace, two people in a marriage who sin against each other can forgive as those who've been forgiven much. By grace, you can humbly receive forgiveness when you're the one who's messed up big time. 
by faith in Christ, we find strength to confront our brothers and sisters who sin against us. Above all else, disciples believe in Christ. We believe God when he promises to forgive us by faith in Christ. That's what God has done. He's, he's made a promise. Forgiveness of sins, they are, that's yours if you trust in Jesus. I will declare you righteous. I will give you eternal life. All of these grand promises come through Jesus. You believe in him. Disciples believe in Christ. The final lesson for us here in this passage is that disciples serve the Lord. Jesus' tarot tells us uh, what sounds like maybe a strange parable about servants. It, it may sound kind of like this guy's a, a mean master and the servant's kind of put upon, but that's not really the point. The, the point is that servants do their duty. So Jesus is not giving instructions for bosses that you should never say thank you to someone working for you or anything like that. He's using this common arrangement of the day, kind of the expectations of masters and servants, that masters give the orders, servants obey, they do their duty, and that, that's kind of how things work. And he's saying, and you are like the servant in this equation, and God is your master. God says, obey, God gives commands, you obey, that's your duty. That's what you owe to God. Let me be clear, this is not a comprehensive picture of the Christian life. This is not everything that could ever be said about it. But it is something that's true and important about the Christian life. To be a Christian is to be a servant of God. That's the kind of punchline of the parable in verse 10. So you also, when you have done all you were commanded, implied by God, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. The point here is the disciples' humility. And the point maybe is clearer when we consider the Pharisees' pride. So what were the Pharisees doing in chapter 14? If you recall, that Jesus was at a feast and he's watching these guys come in and they're all looking to get the place of honor at the feast. They want to be seen and known as godly, righteous people. And I think the implication there is they want this on earth and they want it in heaven. Right? They want to be known as those who have, who have done something for God and who have God's special approval. As if God kind of gives them, like, you know, takes them to the side and says, if it weren't for you, I would really be out of luck. But the disciples aren't to be like that. They're to be humble, humble servants, and to say, I've done my duty. We're not to claim for ourselves the special seats at the banquet, but to humbly trust God and to do as we can what he's called us to do. We think about this servant-master relationship, we can look to Jesus to see the ultimate example of it. And when Jesus reveals himself, he says he, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now there he's talking more, I think, about serving us, but we see this servant relationship in other places. So look at what Christ says about himself in, in John chapter 15, verse 10. This is the great chapter about abiding in the vine. And Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus, who is God himself, is saying about himself that he came to keep the Father's commandments. 
He sees himself, even though he's the dearly beloved eternal son, as a humble and obedient servant of God. You know, he might, might just say, Jesus, what are you up to? I'm just following orders. I'm just doing what the Lord's commanded me to do. And tomorrow I'm going to wake up and do it again the next day. Disciples understand that God is our master, that he has the right to command us, and we have a duty to obey. And if you want to think about some specific duties, just go back to chapter, uh, the same, chapter verse 1 of this same chapter, right? We have a duty to wash our lives and not to lead others into sin. We have a duty to love our brothers and sisters when they sin, to rebuke and correct them. We have a duty to repent of sin. The most fundamental duty of all, you might say, is the duty to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what God, our master, commands us to do. Are we doing our duty? Are we living as his humble servants? Or do we have a higher opinion of ourselves? In a strange sense, the wonder of the gospel is kind of hidden in this parable. It gets clear we're not owed any special thanks or commendation from God. I mean, you, you can imagine kind of some version of salvation where, where God righteously and graciously even says, you've done your duty, you're always going to have a place here as a servant in my court, right? I mean, the psalmist says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere, right? But the Lord goes beyond that because he does commend us. For the sake of Christ, he calls his servants his sons. And so we come back to the foundational truth of discipleship. To be a disciple is to know God. To know him as your merciful judge and your righteous father. And to know God like this You have to know Jesus. You know God like this by looking to Christ. Like no other person, Christ reveals God's righteousness because God's forgiveness required his death. Nothing less would pay the price of your sins than Jesus giving his life for you. When we look at Jesus and we see him clearly, we can never think, that God views sin as no big deal. To pay for sin, the Son of God took on flesh and died. The righteous judgment of God was poured out on Jesus. When we look at Jesus, we see God in his righteousness and wrath. But we also see, in the very same act, Christ revealing the amazing compassion and mercy of God. We see the Son of God willingly, voluntarily, taking on flesh and dying for our sake. Through his death, we are forgiven and declared righteous. In his mercy, God makes sinners fit for service in his house. And so we know fullness of joy forevermore. We know that we serve because God has showered us with mercy. We know his abundant grace. This is the grace within which we carry out the duties of discipleship. We love God and we love his children because he first loved us. And it's only by the grace of God that any of us are servants of God.
Let's pray. Father, when we read this passage in our flesh, it seems impossible. How could any any person come to know you, the righteous God? How can we receive your love? But in Christ, it's possible. In Christ, we can know your forgiveness. In Christ, we can become forgiving and repentant. We pray, Father, that you would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and that this would change the way we live. Help us to live as those who know you, our righteous Father, our merciful judge. We pray for this help in Christ's name. Amen.